Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome the president and CTO of Omelas, Benjamin Dubo, to discuss the complex world of open source intelligence, disinformation, and the evolving digital landscape across social media. In this episode, we'll discuss the growing complexities in counterterrorism and social media surveillance and the exponential growth of issues related to misinformation and its threat to society. Ben shares the impact of misinformation on society and how the intelligence community is trying to combat disinformation in today's world. Ben also provides his insights into Russian influence on social media and the West response to Russian influence tactics by governments and societies. Next, we dig into the alarming trends of jihadi propaganda and anti-Semitism on platforms like TikTok and Twitter and the role of social media algorithms in spreading this harmful content. Lastly, we discuss the role of generative AI in the realm of propaganda and its risk and opportunities and the ethical considerations and potential biases in AI-driven intelligence. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Ben Dubo from Omelas. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Ben. Thanks for having me. You know, Ben, we've been an investor in your company for almost five years now, so obviously we know each other well, but it would be great if you can give our audience a brief background on yourself and how you ended up launching your latest startup, Omelas and what your mission is with your company and how it's evolved from the early days to where you're sitting today with the company. Yeah, definitely. And thanks so much for having me on and for all your support over the years. Uh, So I started my career tracking jihadi and white nationalist propaganda online, coming from, I guess, a bit of a coddled environment before that. It's definitely a shock to the system uh, to go from kind of more standard office jobs that I had in undergrad working for city government to witnessing some of the worst terrorist atrocities going on in the world back then. What really stuck with me from that experience wasn't so much the nature of the atrocities. I, you know, I'd studied the subject in undergrad and always just kind of applied this Western view to what was going on, this understanding that, yeah, these bad things had to happen, but it was part of some, you know, greater cause. And it was just an unfortunate side effect. But when I went on to those forums, what I saw was people celebrating the atrocities themselves, seeing marketplaces, hospitals being bombed and saying, you know, thank God something so wonderful has happened. Now those infidels, apostates, what have you, uh, will think twice before challenging us. Um, And that really challenged a lot of what I thought I knew. People generally, I had this kind of understanding, I thought of what people thought was moral and to see the exact opposite of my understanding uh, being understood, not just as, you know, unfortunate means to adjust ends, but something that's worth celebrating in itself was a real shock to the system. Uh, so I spent a lot of time reading, trying to understand exactly what caused that. Um, in the meantime, I got a job with uh, the Foreign Service, the United States Diplomatic Corps, uh, but this was back in 2011 when I left my job to start that one. Within a few months, uh, the U.S. government agreed to this budget deal called the Sequester, which eliminated all new foreign service shops. So a year and a half after graduating, uh, speaking Arabic and Farsi, having a published senior thesis on Afghanistan, was living with my parents and delivering pizzas. So at that point, I thought it was time to explore new career paths. I taught myself some web design in undergrad, thought I could use that to work my way into tech. Uh, I got a job at the very bottom selling software to help lawyers keep track of filing deadlines for patents and trademarks, which was 
every bit as exhilarating as it sounds. Kept doing web design on the side, eventually got good enough that I could go do that on my own. Uh, did it on my own for a while before landing a job at Google. And Google was just absolute paradise compared to everything I had done before. Uh, spent a couple of years just kind of, you know, relishing in the, you know, free food, the regular breaks with my team to go play Mario Kart, uh, all the, you know, Silicon Valley stereotypes you could imagine. I was on the ad sales side, which is the bulk of the company. I guess this was 2015, uh, Friday night. Um, I got a text from one of my coworkers who was from Paris. He asked me if I saw what was going on. And I looked up the news and I saw the Bataclan attacks unfolding. I went back to those forums that I used to track online. And just like before, I saw people celebrating, praising God for something that to me seemed so horrible having happened. I got an email from one of my clients saying, hey, are you guys checking the news? How do we make sure that none of our ads appear on stories about this? That juxtaposition really hit me uh, and kind of made me realize that with my skill set, my background, my reaction to something like this can't be how do I protect an advertiser's brand? It has to be how do I stop it from happening again? Uh, so I wasn't really sure what to do with that. I managed to land a uh, side project, 20% project at Google called the redirect method where we would uh, deliver counter messaging. So messages from reformed members of ISIS, from moderate preachers on search terms shahadis would use to get to their forums. And that was by far the most meaningful work I had ever done uh, at Google. But all we were doing to see whether or not it worked was looking looking at click-through rate, the percentage of people who saw the ads who actually clicked on it. Meanwhile, at my full-time job, kind of baseline expectation was lifetime value over cost of acquisition for our customers. Uh, so it really bothered me something as trivial as selling burgers and weekend getaways was generations ahead of something as important as stopping terrorist recruitment. That insight was really what founded Omelas, this idea that we could take the tech that advertisers use to understand loyalty to brands, to understand loyalty to terrorist groups. And so that's how we got our start uh, back in late 2016, early 2017. Uh, we went through Techstars after that and went about actually building the product to do that. Uh, obviously helped along by your guys' investment as well and the general support that you provided. Uh, when we actually built it out, realizes what we had built uh, could be applied to propaganda of all kinds, not just terrorist propaganda. And when we started directing it beyond just these forums, these telegram channels, the whole world, uh, we found that Russia was a much, much bigger player. We started expanding our scope beyond just influence operations launched by jihadis to include those launched by great power competitors, China, Russia, and Iran. When we finally started actually getting to uh, our would-be clients, when we started finding that product market fit, we found that there actually were already a lot of players out there who were delivering a lot of social media. Uh, but what they had been doing was basically just giving our clients as much data as they could possibly find and hoping that machine learning was going to figure out what the difference was between the signal and the noise. Uh, so we decided to take a different approach and the way that we deliver for open source intelligence gathering for influence operations now 
So you've built a massive knowledge base of tens of thousands of media organizations, of political leaders, of militant groups, terrorist groups, state-owned enterprises, influential businesses, and more. And we're only collecting data that comes from social networks that belong to entries within that knowledge base. So that means all the data that we have coming in, not only do we have 100% attribution, but we can ask all these questions about who's actually talking because we know for all these different media organizations, because we manually put it in, what their ownership structure looks like. We know for all these politicians, whether it's in Argentina, whether it's in Iran, whether it's in Ukraine, what their political party is, what the alignment of that political party is. We know for all these business organizations, too, what industries they're in. Uh, so that lets us ask a lot of really detailed questions about the authorship of these documents, whether they're online, whether they're on it's really hard to access social networks in Russia, China, and Iran, whether they're on major Western social networks. Then we're also applying a whole bunch of analysis to that content so that we could ask not just who's talking, but what they're actually talking about. We're able to, uh, with our named entity recognition, tie everything in the 100 plus languages that we operate in back to that knowledge base. Uh, we're able to apply quote extraction to all of our text. So we're not just getting what leaders are saying on social media, anything they're saying in interviews, anything that they're saying in public transcripts, we're getting that as well. We're applying sentiment analysis so that we get kind of a pulse on what general populations, general groupings are saying. And so we could ask a lot of really specific questions that are really important to our users, whether that's in the defense sector and they want to know, you know, for instance, what are... Iranian uh, politicians who are aligned with the reformist movement saying about the renewed nuclear talks, uh, whether it's in the business sector and we want to know what companies in Shenzhen province are saying about the recent APEC summit, whether it's more broad and we want to know what telegram channels that are tracking the Ukrainian war in Russia uh, have been saying about Germany in the wake of a new weapon shipment. Uh, so we're able to ask these really specific questions and really deliver these insights into what's going on in the world, whether that is for defense use cases, whether it's for business use cases, whether it's for financial companies that are interested in being better prepared for global uncertainty. We are able to combine our subject matter expertise that we have on staff that we have through partnerships with really advanced both machine learning and now more AI uh, to give those insights to really get a very global view on what's going on with very precise data, really piercing insights. Yeah, it's incredible that the journey you've been on for almost over a decade now, like when you started thinking about these forms that you're researching and seeing all the terrorism conversations that were happening and celebrations that were happening is still the exact same problem that we're facing today. But you came at it from your background, obviously working at Google. You know, I find it interesting that when we hear the talking heads on CNN and MSNBC and Fox, you know, they have their expert panelists that are taking information from the ground. Uh, and giving it back to the viewers and the listeners. But the fraction of information that they're collecting is nowhere close to how much entanglement there is of information out there on the global web across multiple platforms, across multiple countries, that they'll never be able to get as close to actually the raw truth of almost like investigative journalism that you're doing, but on a massive scale with obviously machine learning and AI. But it all comes down to the open source intelligence that you are able to obviously 
uh, surveillance. So, you know, maybe we could talk about this. You've been working on counterterrorism in the social media landscape for a very long time. Uh, but those issues have only grown exponentially, right? With more platforms and more groups popping up left, right, and center. There's the, you know, the ISIS movement that happens to be connected to Iran and then Hamas and, and, in Gaza and then Hezbollah, like there's so many different fractions that spin off and create these new challenges for you to face. So maybe you could explain how the world is still struggling to manage all the data out there, you know, in order to limit the spread of it, misinformation and how you're trying to make sense of it all. The just amount of data being produced for public consumption is growing at an exponential pace. It's something like every two years, we get more data uploaded online than in all of history put together before that. The large, large majority of that is nonsense. It's people uploading pictures of their food. It's you know people tweeting about sports. It's people tweeting about whatever uh, or uploading across any social media platform. Finding what's important there. Uh, is immensely challenging. And while there has been an exponential increase in the important content that you can find there, the increase in noise has been even greater. So the challenge, so even though there's way more signal to find, the challenge of finding that signal has only gotten greater. We tried to, so both me and my co-founder, we have open source intelligence gathering backgrounds. We did start in a time when there was way less data online. Uh, so it's a bit more manageable of a problem. What we found it, especially when comparing the steps that we would take, the conclusions we would come to, to newer hires of ours, to interns who don't necessarily have the background, is the data itself is really only valuable in so much as it fits into a larger constellation of meaning insofar as you can actually make it contextualize in that you can actually have somebody understand how that fits into the broader environment. And there are a lot of really important things to understand. One of the things that we really try to do is to help our users see the world through our adversaries' eyes. The assumptions about the world are vastly, vastly different uh, across different regions, across different cultures. Uh, so when I started really digging into kind of the jihadi mindset to understand how something like bombing a marketplace could be celebrated, started to realize there actually was an internal consistency in how they view the world. Uh, it was very, very different than ours, uh, but they had kind of different assumptions about how the world works, different values on what the most important things were. And that leads to very different conclusions about the world. The exact same thing with Russia. They have a very different history than ours. Not only do they have a different history, they teach that history very differently. They draw very different conclusions from the same global events than we do. Uh, because of that, terms that might have a positive connotation when speaking to an American audience won't necessarily have a positive connotation abroad. A strong example of this is with jihadis, the American term freedom can often have more of a connotation of licentiousness, more of a connotation of, you know, when they talk about liberty, what they actually mean is failing to uphold the duties and obligations that make life worth living. And so, yeah, they want to call it freedom. But, you know, if we hear that word freedom. The meaning of it is the destruction of traditional society. For Russia, terms like color revolution, which in the U.S., uh, in the West, we tend to think of 
as, you know, these popular movements to overthrow authoritarian regimes, bring about democratic change. In Russia, they're very much viewed as just coups uh, orchestrated by Western governments to overthrow pro-Russian legitimate rulers. What we really try to do is for all the data that we bring in, instead of just showing that it's data, we try to provide that context. We try to show how it fits into a larger landscape of meaning uh, so that our users aren't just looking at data, they're able to develop, produce intelligence from the data. They're able to understand how the data fits into the larger trends that are happening and able to convert what at its base is just a string of text or a single video into something that matters a lot more that can actually be actioned upon. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like if you see a uh, transcribed uh, conversation with some foreign leader translated into English, the transliteration doesn't work the same uh, and you have no context to that. Uh, Yet we still republish that as if it's converted perfectly to the English language and and have the same meaning, but it doesn't actually. You know, but that's uh, also begs a question about all the amounts of misinformation as well as disinformation in the open source intelligence world. So let's talk about the rise of disinformation and the concept of truth and what constitutes truth these days. I mean, especially with everything going on overseas right now, the gap between what truth and real truth is, is so vast. You know, maybe you can explain the rise of disinformation and how are you defining disinformation in today's digital landscape? Certainly very tricky. Uh, You know, disinformation almost certainly predates real information. It's So there's actually a quote from Russian uh, general secretary in the Russian view, the U.S. launched a information war, a war of disinformation against the Russian people. And Russia has just been responding defensively to that information war. This uh, leader of Russia's equivalent of NATO said that in an information war, the one who tells the truth is bound to lose for he is bound by the truth where the liar can proclaim whatever he wishes. The universe of unreality is infinite, while the universe of reality is finite. So if you get a random piece of information, the odds that it's disinformation are just far, far greater. And, you know, again, you could like go back to our evolutionary history. Kid asked their dad why the sun rose in the morning. Dad probably wasn't going to say, well, you know, the earth is spinning around an axis that is spinning around the sun at 93 million miles away from it, right? We didn't discover that till 400 years ago. Actually being able to discover truth is a very, very difficult, drawn-out process. Uh, so when you have a system where the amount of information is expanding exponentially, the chance that disinformation is going to make up a larger and larger share of that is pretty high. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, We have information systems that are really biased towards outrage, that are really biased towards uh, sensationalism. And those are attributes that do not lend themselves to actual truth finding. When we approach disinformation at Omelas, uh, we kind of keep that in mind that there are these kind of broad systemic problems. And one of the other things we really keep in mind is the difficulty of discovering the truth. Uh, It is highly, highly unlikely that when a major event of global importance happens, we are going to understand the truth within minutes or within hours. The entire profession of history basically is 
continuing debates about what the truth is about things that happened 20, 50, 100 years ago, really understanding what the truth is yeah, at scale, instantaneous. Uh, I actually think that's a fool's errand. We're not going to be able to do that anytime soon. If we were able to do that, have very unsettling implications about who is determining what the truth is uh, and what that actually means. But the way that we approach it instead is by giving all these details about authorship, letting our users understand what the potential biases of the authors are, letting our users understand what the alignments of the authors are, uh, and giving them the ability themselves to kind of triangulate before between all these different competing visions of the truth uh, so that they can get an understanding of what potentially is happening between all of these different viewpoints on these events. And I do think that's actually one of the very exciting parts about this explosion of information from across the world. Uh, we do have this ability now to see a much broader interpretation of global events and get a much fuller view of the world. Uh, it's still immensely, immensely difficult to actually do that. But definitely one of my favorite parts of my job is being able to see how vastly different different people's different cultures interpret the same events. Yeah, it's an important because it's like a fake news filter. You know, obviously there's a ton of problems with X right now, but the community notes are having an impact on some of the stuff that people are uh, reacting to at first glance. And they're not perfect, but they are better than what they had before. It's funny when you say like the truth is easier to define than the non-truth. You know, it's kind of like why people say they uh, there, there's a reason for God. It's because they need to have something to blame on when they don't have the actual answers or truth to something. And that gives them a wide array of things that they can believe in because they can blame it on God. But let's not go that direction here. I want to talk about your obvious focus on Russia. You focused a lot of time on Russian influence on social media platforms, you know, and the overall operations in Western media. Can you maybe explain the mechanics of the Russian influence on operations in the digital age and what maybe distinguishes Russian influence campaigns from others? Yeah, so it's really uh, interesting comparing, say, the rise of Russian influence operations to the rise of Chinese influence operations. Informational control was hugely important to the Soviet Union. Lots of modern surveillance techniques stem from uh, Soviet pioneers in the field. Uh, so basically everybody who's in power in Russia now came of age under this mindset that, you know, information is power, control of information is essential to power. When the Soviet Union collapsed in the 90s, you had this brief flowering of free media within Russia and you have this explosion of television channels, of newspapers, but these are all kind of vanity projects of oligarchs. So some of it is thought of as donations, and you get a lot of really hard-hitting independent journalism that just did not exist in Soviet times. This is most evident during the first Chechen war. Uh, during Soviet times, you would never, ever have negative reporting on wars that the Soviets were engaged in. But for the first time during the first Chechen war, people back home in the Russian metropole see the realities of what's going on in Chechnya. So you have this really positive aspect of the news, but at the same time, ultimately owned by oligarchs uh, who came of age with this mentality that information is power. And a lot of what these independent media sources are doing are sniping at each other 
on behalf of their oligarchs' interests. So that really create breeds a lot of cynicism within Russia on what free media actually is. So when Putin comes to power, one of his first initiatives is to subdue the oligarchs. And at first, he goes after the media moguls. Within about four or five years, almost all major media outlets in Russia are either owned directly by the government, by state-owned enterprises like Gazprom, the state energy giant, or by oligarchs who are closely allied to Putin. But you still have all of these different media outlets in every oblast, in every city, and you still have market mechanisms where they're really competing against each other. They just can't say anything bad about the government anymore. So you essentially have this competition throughout the 2000s within Russian media uh, to see who can do the best job of coming up with the most unhinged conspiracies to explain why things aren't going well in Russia. And they come up with just the most sensationalist, like absurd tabloid headlines you can think of. As luck would have it at this exact same time, we get the rise of Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, where that's the exact sort of media that they reward above anything else. Sensationalism, journalism, or National Enquirer headlines, basically. Yes, yes, exactly. When Russia starts to turn its attention to international propaganda with the launch of RT in 2007, it kind of is already set for the digital era. It's already set for recommendation engines. RT winds up absolutely dominating by 2015. They're the largest uh, news network in the entire world. Uh, on YouTube. They are the number two news network in English by 2016, number one in Spanish, number one in Arabic. Across Twitter, they're still number one. RT Actua Alidad is still number one in Spanish. Explain to our listeners, RT is is Russian television or Russian... Yeah, sorry. It's uh, So it's a state-owned Russian news agency uh, with the goal of promoting the Russian interpretation of events, the Russian worldview. Uh, so it's Russian international propaganda. And actually, interestingly, propaganda is not really a bad word. In Russia, they mean it as kind of a, a synonym for PR. So you'll occasionally see PR translated as corporate propaganda into Russian. And how, how have governments and societies, I guess, been responding to this influence, given that it got so freaking large in 2015 and obviously into the 2018 election with Trump? Yeah, well, so the, the first half of the 2010s, there was essentially no response whatsoever. Starting around 2016, you actually don't have too much government response. Uh, what you do have is much more of kind of a wake-up call. And this was a very long kind of internal battle within Western media um, about whether they adapt to the digital age, which would require a lot of transformations that are considered to go against the core values of journalism or whether they'll, they'll retain kind of what they did before um, and the former starts to win out. So throughout the second half of the 2010s, not only does RT get more of a reputation for being a Russian mouthpiece, not only do huge portions of the West turn against Russia uh, for their clear support of political rivals within the United States and within France, Germany. But you have traditional Western media adopting a lot of the tactics of RT, uh, much more sensationalist reporting, much more identity-based reporting. Um, and that means that they start to drive far, far more views, uh, get far more engagement on their content. RT kind of 
falls behind. Uh, so in a way, it's good because Russian influence is diminished, but it's kind of diminished because Western media adopts the tactics of <laughs> Russian media. Bit of a mixed bag. Uh, then after the invade, the full-on invasion of Ukraine in 2022, uh, you have a lot of Western European countries that banned RT and its numbers throughout the world really plummeted. And a lot of cable providers kicked them off. They lost a lot of their ability to fund operations within the United States, uh, within most of the Western world. They still do hold a lot of influence in the Spanish-speaking and Arabic-speaking world, which is quite a testament to their efforts. The United States has, I think, 45 million Spanish speakers. Russia has maybe a few hundred. It's definitely kind of still a stain on the U.S. international record that RT, uh, Russian-backed Spanish-speaking, offering could outperform American-based ones. That is crazy. That is crazy. It just shows you the power of the information wars, though. But I mean, like, speaking about the information wars, you've got obviously the crazy events unfolding in the Middle East, the very unfortunate, horrific events of October 7th, and all of the apps that are benefiting from the rise in propaganda that we are seeing out there that is super concerning, obviously, especially for these Gen Zers who are praising Osama bin Laden on TikTok, for fuck's sake. I mean, what are the unique characteristics of the jihadi propaganda online that you've studied for over a decade? And why is the rise of platforms like TikTok still enabling and allowing this in your eyes? Yes, it's very interesting. Whereas Russia, you had kind of a very intentional strategic outreach to promote a worldview that was similar to Russia's. What you have with support for Hamas is kind of a Western imposition very recent kind of trendy high-end Western worldview onto what Hamas is doing in a way that Hamas itself would never ever say themselves. Uh, and it is interesting to compare English language Hamas content to Arabic language Hamas content. Just give us some examples because you obviously speak both. So give us some examples of how they're impacting the trans transcription over to English. For the most part, the Arabic language content really focuses on Islam. And, you know, Hamas's main goal is to establish an Islamic theocracy. That's what they've done within Gaza. That's what they promised to do across all of Palestine. They then promised to overthrow neighboring Arab states to do the same. Um, and a lot of the connection to Palestine is really through this lens of God has promised this land to Islam when our forebears kicked out the Romans, when they conquered this land, that meant that it was going to be Islamic forever. And to give it back to a people that were here before that practice a religion that came before Islam is to, you know, to go back in time to go against God's word. And that's why we need to launch this fight because you know, it's against the will of God to have this ancient, antiquated, obsolete religion still practiced in, in a land where God has determined that, you know, the new, the final message must be practiced. You're talking about Judaism before Islam, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Just for people who don't know how old it goes. Right. And there's actually, uh, Hamas doesn't promote this as much, but uh, Bin Laden, that train of jihadism. They actually claim uh, Abraham and Moses were Muslims, 
and modern uh, Judaism is a corruption of that faith and the revelation uh, of Prophet Muhammad was a reassertion of the original religion of Abraham and Moses. So uh, how has Western uh, media kind of impacted the way it's transcribed back to us, though? What you see a lot is kind of this fitting into a more postmodern narrative. You know, you'll hear the phrase settler colonial state a lot. You'll hear a lot about the oppressed and the oppressor uh, dynamic, the colonized colonizer dynamic. But for Hamas, you know, they take great pride in the imperial heritage of the Arab of the Arabs who conquered uh, so much of the world in the seventh and eighth century. They really see themselves as, you know, continuation of imperial conquest. But for, you know, especially Western students, you know, that obviously would not have much appeal, uh, whereas the idea they're fighting uh, against, you know, an outside, an imperial outsider, as opposed to, you know, an indigenous people who were conquered and overthrew their conquerors, but that's not God's will, that obviously would not have as much appeal. Uh, but that kind of independent one uh, really has a much longer tradition within campuses uh, going back to Edward Said in the 70s and 80s, and from when the Palestinian leadership was much more aligned to Marxist-Leninism than to Islamism like they are today. Got it. And how do the social media algorithms contribute to the spread of anti-Semitic content? So beyond just kind of the normal social media amplifying outrage, amplifying s- sensationalism that uh, you see everywhere, what social media does as well is really promote kind of exclusionary identity groups. There's this great book called Traffic by Ben Smith, who is who's one of the founders of BuzzFeed News, where he kind of tracks the history of BuzzFeed, of a few Gizmodo properties, a lot of the media giants who came to dominate. And he found that one of the most successful types of content that you could create were these BuzzFeed lists that maybe you saw uh, like 10 years ago, there's like 10 things you'll only get if you grew up in, you know, a single family whole home in Toronto. 10 things you'll only get if, you know, you had Thanksgiving with at least 10 family members, stuff like that. But that sort of content where you are really being able to signal your belonging to a particular group wound up outperforming across basically every you know, metric. And as more media adopted that approach, identitarianism became a really dominant lens through which to see the world. Uh, And so it became more and more common to analyze global events, not at the individual level of what the actual leaders were doing, but what different groups are doing. And this is also kind of very natural kind of simplification. You know, it's not necessarily new, you always see Russia is doing something instead of talking about a particular ministry or even particular person. A lot of what makes anti-Semitism really resonate is that kind of erasure of the individual, seeing the lens only through what the collective does um, and holding group members responsible for what any member of their group does. You kind of see this in the 30s when you look at the rise of anti-Semitism throughout Europe. You had a lot of it in the Soviet Union, where Jews were equated with international capital. But then 
in Germany, you had Jews equated with Bolshevism, where they would talk about Judeo-Bolshevism, uh, because, you know, Jews are individuals. We're not a single collective. We're not a unified monolith that is acting totally in one direction. Uh, so on both sides, they could find Jews who are, you know, involved in international capital. Therefore, all Jews are responsible for anything bad that's happening in capitalism, could find Jews supporting the Soviet Union. Therefore, they were responsible for all the horrors uh, inflicted by communists. Right. But whatever their mission is and whatever truth they want, they fit the narrative to fit that truth is essentially what they were doing. And they still do that today, you know, but how does Omelas, you know, work in terms of helping obviously give people a point of view from the other side of the spectrum, but also counter anti-Semitism or jihadi propaganda on social media platforms? Like, how do you think it will end up working well for people trying to stop this from happening? A significant portion of what we do is working with people are developing the intelligence that can prevent attacks like what we saw on October 7th, working with people who can get a global understanding of what sort of extremist violent messaging is going on in the world. Um, and by being able to expose what Hamas is saying in their own words, uh, working with journalists to promote that, working with journalists, uh, with media organizations, think tanks, to show the double talk where they go to the English speaking world and try to promote this kind of, oh, I'm just like these innocent victims you learn about in your sociology class. I'm one of you. And then they turn around to the Arabs and say, you know, oh, don't worry about what we're saying over there. You know, we're going to commit these horrible massacres over and over again. And we're going to exterminate all the impurities that afflict our holy land forever, making sure that you know, it's well understood what Hamas is actually saying, what their goals actually are. Really kind of have to have faith that ultimately that when that gets out there, when we're able to kind of break through this Western view that's being imposed on Hamas and people can actually see what their ultimate goals are, that'll help to break the hypnosis that they have over such a large portion of the population. It's interesting, though, the ideology, though, of Hamas is, is spun off from all the other ones that came before it. So it seems like it just comes out back in a new iteration. How do you think the role of generative AI and advanced technologies like yours and others out there are going to be able to take this ideology and the spreading of it across the globe out of circulation? Like, what drastic measures do we need to take? And how is Omelas playing a role in that? Yeah, so it'd be really difficult, honestly, to take it totally out of circulation. One of the potential benefits of generative AI, though, as it spreads and it becomes more influential, is that it is trained for the most part on English language content. It does, for the most part, kind of embed within its answers this understanding of the world that's dominant in liberal democracies. If you press it, it'll say it has no preference for governments, but it's very clear kind of the things that we view as positive human rights, equality, uh, civil liberties, it uses very positive and it's very hard to get it to frame those in a negative light. Uh, as that becomes more popular and as generative AI moves from just kind of a toy for most of the population into something closer to a personal assistant, it will help to propagate that understanding of the world 
And that's one of the reasons that dictators are so afraid of generative AI right now. You know, Russia immediately banned ChatGPT when it came out because they're afraid, and rightfully so, that a generative model that's trained on mostly English language media is going to interpret the world the same way as a person who mostly reads English language media. Interesting, because you wrote about this in your recent SIPA article about the threat of AI to nations like Russia and China and their ability to control this information warfare. So maybe explain how AI can obviously solve for those like ethical considerations, obviously being trained in English, it's going to have a higher intelligence towards maybe the truth, hopefully the truth, but like what kind of uh, ways can it also be used to their advantage? You know, the actual deployment of generative AI obviously has a lot of propaganda potential with it. One of what I think the most positive potential uses of it is to be able to understand how the rest of the world sees the world differently than you do. Uh, so you can really grill it and get an understanding of why Russia thinks something that's very minor to us is this gigantic issue. You know, if you're a public diplomacist and you want messaging, it's going to resonate with Russia, but you haven't spent much time there. You could kind of prime it to give you answers that are more appealing to a Russian audience. That can be flipped on us as well. Could mean, you know, a propagandist could very easily go to it, give me some messaging that is that, you know, adheres to all of Facebook's guidelines, but is really good for exacerbating racial tensions within the United States. It's really good for aggravating anti-Semitism within the United States. Uh, and it has the ability to do that. What Russia and China, Russia is kind of honestly out of the race at this point, but I think what really is going to determine what generative AI people use is how effective it is at day-to-day -day tasks. So, you know, I use ChatGPT to help check my coding all the time or use it a lot for kind of more obscure programming languages just to get a sense of them. It's that practical use that is why I use it. Uh, China is actually very close on a lot of performance metrics. And if they wind up ahead um, in terms of practical uses, people aren't going to switch to something else when they have more simple questions like, you know, what happened in Tiananmen Square. Right. History can be rewritten by AI, I guess, if the original creators of it in China want it to be written that way. You know, it's interesting on the optimist, optimistic side, you've got hopefully an understanding of a bigger worldview that can be consumed from somebody in the Western world when people are designing counter-propaganda strategies. I get that. But in a pessimistic view, it can work the other way for the people delivering the propaganda. You can create fake images of what they say is happening in Gaza or in Ukraine or something like that. So how do you want Omelas to be developed into a platform that allows you to see the world from other points of view, but hold, hold very high values of truth when trying to protect the world from any of these events from happening again? Yeah, it's a great question. So really our vision, we have this gigantic, gigantic database of, you know, millions of documents from different media organizations, from different political leaders uh, all around the world. And we have them highly annotated so that we can create these training sets that are really, really customized. The kind of example I gave, uh, you know, I said, okay, well, if you want ChatGPT to 
give you a message that's going to appeal to a Russian audience. It's actually very bad at that right now. It doesn't quite understand exactly what that means. But when you're able to give it hundreds of thousands of documents, when you're able to give a model hundreds of thousands of documents uh, that you know belong to uh, Russian tabloids that are very pro-government, that you know belong to the hardliner, you know, are transcripts from speeches that are given by hardliners in Iran, you're able to create these kind of mini bots that are really customized and speak really true to these kind of syntaxes, these types of messaging that are really hard for Americans, uh, Westerners, anybody outside the region to faithfully replicate. And we're able to do that. Not only does that mean that our messaging about liberal democracy can be more effective it also means we can better understand where our adversaries are coming from. That means that our users have an even better ability not only to predict what they're going to do, but to be able to find a way to promote democracy within those contexts. Yeah, I mean, Ben, the work that you and Nirvana have been doing since day one is extremely difficult. And it's like drinking from a fire hose that just gets bigger and bigger, especially as we head into a 24 election year. Your work is only going to become more important. I will tell you, we will not be translating this into Russian for uh, our (laughs) Russian (laughs) listeners out there, but uh, we'll save that for another episode. Before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. My favorite podcast is actually a Philly sports talk radio (laughs) uh, that they put. That's okay. Just to keep it safe. Yeah. Midday show with Joe Giglio and Hugh Douglas, if you want a a real flavor of Philly. That's awesome. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog? Uh, Eurasia Daily Monitor from Jamestown Foundation. Three in-depth articles every day on something intense that's going on within Russia itself. Read it religiously. I'm sure it's been very active lately. Next is your favorite tech gadget? Uh, So I've been playing a lot with MidJourney over almost a full year now, uh, but that's actually probably my favorite thing to do in my free time is... Uh, image generation with mid-journey uh, and then converting it to full-scale movies with Pika Labs, which is an animator, gives you three seconds. So you're making animated movies? Uh, so not full movies. Uh, it's a bit too much work right now, but uh, minute 30 second trailers for non-existent movies. Very cool. I guess uh, I can tell what your next is your favorite new trend. It's AI videos. <laughs> Obviously. Are you going to make a video of you delivering pizza? That'd be fun. An animated video <laughs> of when you were younger delivering pizza. Uh, uh, favorite book? Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. What's that about? It's about Viktor Frankl. He's a psychiatrist. His experience in the Holocaust and how even in the most trying possible times, uh, how to find meaning and purpose. Of course, yes. I knew that name sounded familiar. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. You only have a very, very small perspective of the world. Not you, Matt. One (laughs) only has a very small perspective of the world, and there is nothing more satisfying than expanding that perspective, even when it is immensely difficult, even when it's immense, when it's going to challenge all your deeply held beliefs. Uh, But we have the ability now to really get a much broader view than anyone else in history. And we should take advantage. Absolutely. Uh, There's nothing actually more enjoyable than learning for yourself that you were wrong or had a smaller sided view towards what the actual truth is. So thanks to people like you and Ivana and the work you're doing at OMLOS. We thank you for this. So thanks for joining us in the tank today, Ben. Thanks for having me. 
Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.